My name is Chris Winder, and you're listening to Through a Scientist's Eyes, a weekly exploration of how science gets done using an interesting bit of science fact and working backwards to tell a story of how we got here and how that fits into your daily life. As we start, especially with this being my first official episode, I want to give you a sense of, of how this is going to work. Um, what I plan to do in this is we're going to use a topic that's to start off our conversations that's very topical to everybody, and that is what is an mRNA vaccine. Um, we'll also go through a little bit of virology, and that's that's an interesting piece. What I won't get into is the safety, safety and efficacy and other terms that people use to really talk about the vaccine itself. There's a ton of really good information out there. Um, as we look at the, as we, as I foreshadow the future, um, I probably will get into it at some point in the future, but that's not for today or for the, this first part of the, of, of the series. Where we want to start is really at the beginning. And, and what I'll do is as we go through this series, and this one will be kind of a setup for this series, is I'll place the, the specific uh, in items that I used to, to get myself up to speed, back up to speed, um, in, the, in the episode descriptions. Um, there'll also be links to the Instagram account where we have some of the visual whiteboards that I've set up that go along with this episode, and my blog, which will have more of the details on some of the information that we don't get into in these conversations. So with that said, what's an mRNA vaccine? Well, there's some basic building blocks of cell biology and another term that you'll hear a lot, which is molecular biology which gives us a real real understanding and footing to understand why an mRNA vaccine is, is safe, it makes sense, how it works, how it does what it does, um, and why it could be a game changer in getting us back to, to some kind of social uh, element that is the typical human experience um, that we're all kind of missing. So we really want to start off with the cell biology. and. There's a ton of processes, a ton of things that we need to get into here, but what I really want to make sure that you get out of this, this particular episode, um, in the next three or four episodes that will follow it, is the basic blocks of what is a cell, how does it work, what does it do. Um, we won't get really deep into the virus stuff and how a virus interacts with the cell in these four episodes. We will in future episodes, but we're going to start off at the very beginning how does a cell function? What's it really doing? How's it organized? And how does that organization play into the daily life of a cell? And again, you'll find some really useful links to YouTube videos that give you some of the more animated views, um, as well as some deeper links on the, the scientific fact that we know from some great resources that I found um, that I use when I explain these things to my kids, uh, when I, and I use explaining it to my friends and family. Uh, there's a lot of really good information out there. Sometimes hard to, to know what's fact from fiction. Um, hopefully as part of the bigger picture of this series is giving you, the listener, some of the tools you need to find the right tool to make to make the information available to you. And hopefully I, what I can do if I do nothing else is give you the right search terms and the right types of information sources to really understand 
the big picture, right? What's going on out there? How do we know? Um, and and I picked the iceberg as the as the images for this podcast series um, purposefully. What we hear in the media is just the tip of the iceberg, as the old saying goes. Um, but I digress. Uh, let's let's get started. Let's get into cell biology. So what's cell biology? I think we have to start a step backwards and say, what's mammalian biology? Well, for the, for many of you, hopefully you know that. Um, you know what it is. You and I are mammals. Uh, your dog's a mammal. If you're a cat person, your cat's a mammal. Uh, if you are like myself and you have multiple animals because uh, my wife's a veterinarian, um, if you have a guinea pig or a hamster or a gerbil, all mammals. What aren't mammals is, if you're like me, I love fish and I have fish tanks and uh, have an axolotl. Um, they're not mammals, uh, so they're different. So what separates us is not this cold-blooded, warm-blooded, that's a really complicated, stuff, really cool subject, but really complicated. Um, is just mammary glands. It's, it's pretty much that simple. Uh, it's why a kangaroo isn't a mammal. Um, that doesn't mean they don't lactate, but the, there's, there's a certain biological look. What isn't common amongst all those is we are eukaryotes. What does that mean? It means we have a cell that has a defined membrane and it has a defined nucleus. And the way you can think of this, and the way that I like to talk about a eukaryotic cell, is um, if you think about an orange, or maybe more 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 uh, accurately, a grapefruit, where you have the outer sh- the outer orange, you have a pith. In this case, it'd be pretty thick because it's a double membrane. Then you have the orange wedges, and then in the center you have the the other pith that keeps it all together. If you take that and make the pith a little bit larger, so it's about a third or a half of the set of the of the orange or grapefruit that's what a cell looks like that's what a eukaryotic cell looks like the other type of cell is a is what we what is known as a bacteria so bacteria don't have a nucleus they have their dna and all their other their other other bits just kind of floating around and everything and then even further down the complication line and i'm using big air quotes there is a virus which has no nucleus it has, doesn't have any of the machinery it needs to recreate itself and that's the big difference between a virus a bacteria and then on on our end of the of the complexity scale a eukaryotic cell but we're going to keep it really really high level in this episode and we'll go into some depths and some other things so so what's important from all the what I just said and the things that I want you to keep in mind is there's really three zones to the new to a eukaryotic cell you have the membranes which define compartments and itself versus the outer world the cytoplasm which is where all the work gets done um, and then last but not least but important for this conversation is the nucleus the nucleus is the central part of the cell um, you can think of it as the central processing or the the hub of a hub and spoke kind of you know supply chain um, kind of Amazon. It would be <laughs> if you think of all the little small businesses in your neighborhood that that you may be supporting, or all the big uh, companies that that you may be work, buying materials from. A Walmart or an Amazon are are the central spoke for that, and that's one way to think of the nucleus. It doesn't necessarily do everything by itself. But it has a central role in how it gets done, how fast it gets done, where everything goes. So it, it plays a very central part 
to how a eukaryotic cell functions. And just tying that back to mRNA and, and mRNA vi vaccines and viruses is that the nucleus is where our genomic DNA is stored, uh, where we make mRNAs, and then these mRNAs have to get transported out of the nucleus. Um, and I did a really interesting whiteboard session, uh, interesting to me at least, hopefully to you as well, that I posted to my blog and on Instagram of what a nucleus is and the different pieces. So what I'm going to follow a little bit is that kind of same structure um, of what the different pieces are. So we're gonna we start off and you say, well, how does the cell define itself? Again, it goes back to the membranes. The and these are really double layers of lipids. So a lipid is really just a fancy term for a fat. Um, if you've ever cooked with oil, you've cooked with a lipid. If you've ever cooked with butter, you've cooked with a with a lipid. So what these do is because water and oil don't mix. Same logic here is that because a cell is mainly water, this this double fat layer allows it to separate itself from the rest of the rest of its environment. So if it's part of a larger organism like you and I, um, it'll allow it to be a defined discrete cell. And this is what gives us the different functions of different cells in our body. Um, your immune system has different types of cells in your brain or your muscle. And they all have to have a definition of themselves, which is done by these membranes. It's always this, it's always this kind of double lipid membrane or fat membrane that, that uh, separates it. And within that, that membrane, you'll have to have channels and holes which allow it to interact with the world. Um, what's important though is that these are very, very well structured. They don't let everything in. Um, sometimes you, we used to call it the lock and key model when I was in, in college uh, a couple moons ago. <laughs> um, but really what it does is it, it provides the cell the ability to make sure that it stays intact. Um, you have on the outer membrane, so the thing that defines a cell, you have receptors which have which interact with very specific molecules that allow it to to signal and talk to the other the other cells around it. And then you have the what we call the channels or pores, which are really used um, to not get too deep into it for other kinds of stuff, really just nutrients. So whether it's the, the proteins and amino acids it has to bring in or the salts that it has to bring in, all these come in through pores. Um, and there's basically an ID pass that a, a molecule, a salt molecule, or an amino acid has to give to get into the cell. It has to make that pass and has to have the exact right shape to get through that pore. It's a really intricate, intricate system. Um, and what it really does for the cells, it allows it to give it some control. You can close those pores. There's a lot of regulation around those. And, and a lot of regulation and complexity um, are a thematic that you'll see throughout all cell biology. It's something that we, we've spent a lot of time understanding through some really interesting techniques. One of the interesting techniques that, that we've heard a lot about lately um, and uh, was instrumental in some of the work that came into getting the coronavirus and defining the how we make the coronavirus vaccine is structural biology and this is basically how they try and take the 
the receptors and the pores and, the co- and all these complexes that come into a membrane to, to provide these specific channels and these lock and key methodologies of defining sign- signal and conversations between cells. Um, how we do that is a technique that is really cool. Um, we won't get into too much today, but suffice it to say, what they need to do is figure out how to make this really slimy thing turn into a crystal so that they can then take a photo through it and define where the structures are. They can slice it up and they can dice it. It's really interesting work. Um, side story is that when I was a graduate student at the Rockefeller University, um, Rod McKinnon won a Nobel Prize for, being, for his work in defining that structure. So, in some ways, it's an old technique. Um, I graduated in 2002, so just about 20 years ago. Uh, but in some ways, it's a new technique. It's it's they're still defining all of the the parameters that you need to to do the structural biology. Um, and there was a really interesting conversation with in uh, This American Life with Daniel Kessenbaum um, and the scientists who were involved with that. Uh, and there's a lot of information on how you do structural biology, uh, enough to fill multiple podcasts. And I won't get into it because that's, um, well, it's really interesting work that's not, you know, my central understanding. And I want to stick with things that I know really well for this first part and the parts that kind of are more relevant to what an mRNA is and these other things. So let's move inwards in the cell. So once you get past the membrane, you have the cytoplasm. <clears throat> Lots going on in there. As I said, it's the main workhorse of the cell. It does everything that the cell needs to do. For example, if you're a muscle cell, the cytoplasm is where all the, the protein parts that make it contract and relax, that's where they all reside is in the cytoplasm. If you are a neuron, the kind of cell that makes up your brain, all the connections and all the electrical activity which goes through them is all done in the cytoplasm. So it's a real workhorse. It's where the work gets done. Um, it's where we make new proteins. It's where we define the signals that we're going to use to talk to other cells. All that happens within the cytoplasm. Uh, and let's keep moving through the cell, as it were. Between the cytoplasm and the your genome, the genes that do the work, you have another layer, so the nuclear membrane. And this has this really fun, complex structure um, called the nuclear pore. Uh, and the way to think of it is kind of a wagon wheel with with like octopus legs on both ends. And it does this because it specifically is a two-way channel for bringing in specific items and letting specific items out. We don't want just free transport. Again, this is part of how a cell protects itself against the virus, is not bringing in fragments of RNA and DNA into its nucleus without the right, right passkey. Now, obviously, viruses over the millennia have figured out how to breach that system and get past the security. But, but there is a security system nonetheless. So once we're in the nucleus, there's a, there's a lot of things that we kind of are in the process of understanding. And, you know, as a, as a bit of a side note, part of what got me into science and brought me to doing my PhD um, was this idea of how do we make a cell do what we want it to do. So, for example, my, my PhD was on a protein that helps the cell decide during development which gene it should turn on and off to become the kind of cell it's gonna become. And we'll take a brief segue here. 
So what do we know about how a cell develops, how a body develops? Um, part of that is we have in us about six foot or two meters of DNA, and we pack that into every cell. So every cell has your full genome. So that's an important point here. And it's packed, we've taken that two meters and we packed it into less than a hundredth of a meter. So if you think about that, think about if you as, I'm, I'm about a six foot tall person, if we took myself or for anybody, it's not just a matter of taking myself and putting me in a clown car. It's taking myself, folding me up appropriately so that I could fit into a, an old school Tonka truck. So not the, not the mini, mini ones, but, but a slightly larger than the mini, mini ones. What's, what's fascinating is that it still functions. You know, if you, obviously to do what you'd have to do to squeeze me into that territory, I wouldn't be able to move anything. And I would probably, well, if we're being honest about it, I wouldn't be alive. But in the nucleus, the, it's been done in such a way that you can still access the genes that are part of the genome to do what you need to do. And this is a process that we call gene regulation. And gene regulation is the process of how we we open up tiny pieces of the, or, or quite large stretches of the six meters of DNA so that you can find the right gene. So for example, if we in the cell need to replace the structure of the cell, the scaffolding, which is a protein of the cell, which gives it its shape because there's damage, we signal into the nucleus, hey, I need the F-actin gene to be used. That's interesting. Um, but again, remember there is 20 to 40,000 genes and gene variants. So we sometimes reshuffle a gene and use it four different ways and four different combinations. Um, and, and what's amazing about that process is that we know that it works. We know that the cell has figured out a way to find the exact gene that it's looking for. And how it does this is, is an area that um, was an area of study when I, when I was doing my postdoctoral studies and then when I had my own lab uh, for four or five years, this was an area that we were studying. We call it epigenetics, which is kind of um, a fancy way of saying the, how we regulate genes. And it's really around how do we open and close the DNAs? How do we have bookmarks around the right genes so that the cell can find it efficiently? So for example, going back to that F-actin, the scaffold protein. If we have to find that one scaffold protein in the 20 or 30,000 genes, it's gonna take forever. It would take longer than the cell would need before that protein degrades. So we need a fast mechanism. So what we do is we'll have a specific set of signals which tell us that that it's an F-actin gene that needs to be replaced. Then we'll have, within the nucleus, we'll have a specific you know, tag or bookmark which says, hey, here are the 10, five or 10, and I, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but there's more than one gene that becomes an, a protein scaffold or an actin gene. So once we're in the nucleus, we have to find that, that, that tag or that bookmark. And then we have to figure out which one is the right one. So it's this complex dance of, of signal that leads to signal that leads to signal and, and interacts with a grouping of signals. So we have this process that takes us from, hey, define what we need to define as a group, 
and then define where in the genome that could be. What makes it even more complicated is that because our genome is such a mess in some ways, not all the F-actin genes are beside each other. It's not that we have to open up one stretch on one chromosome. It's that there might be 10 different locations <coughs> that we have to look. And within those 10 different locations, there might be two or three variations of that, that scaffold protein, which it could be. And so the cell has to define which ones of the of these scaffold proteins it's going to make. And candidly, what it really usually does is it doesn't make just the one. It just fires off a copy of 10 of these and it brings it out to the cytoplasm where it has, you know, the worker bees do all the work. It says, here, here's all 10 of them. You decide. Destroy the other ones. You know, send me back the ones that you don't need. I'll put them. I'll put them in my back pocket in case we need them later quickly. So it's this fascinating process of of making just a little bit too much. It's not quite you know in the supply chain world they call it just in time, where you only make what you need. But it's not just having this reservoir of every gene that we ever might need as a cell. And so when we start looking at that, that's that's kind of the pre-process. What, what we get into next is when we actually figure it out which one we want to make. We have to transcribe the DNA. So, so we have three sub substances that are important to this conversation. We have the DNA, which makes up your, your genome and is part of your chromosomes and is organized in your nucleus. We need a way to have the, the gene, the copy of the gene, get to where we make proteins which happens all in the cytoplasm so we don't want to cut and paste our genome because then we have to put it back together when we're done so what we do is we make a make a copy we transcribe the the dna into a slightly different molecule again going back to this idea of complexity and channels and how do we make sure that only the things that we want are going in and out of the nucleus we use a slightly different molecule because then we can have a different id pass for this so we make a messenger RNA. So this is the M in the mRNA piece. We make a messenger RNA. This gets transcribed by what we call RNA polymerase because what it does is it takes RNA molecules and it connects them together. So it polymerizes them. It makes a polymer of them. Once we have that, we, we give it a security guard in the form of a protein that allows it to get out of the nucleus and then, and then make sure it gets to the, the ribosome, which is where we translate the mRNA into a protein. And we do this through a really interesting process. So once we've made the mRNA, once we're allowing the mRNA to get out of the nucleus via the security guard, we bring it to this area called the, where the ribosomes are, and then what we have to do is we have to take this, this code, this RNA code, which is very similar to the DNA code, and we have to turn this into another molecule. So similar to what we did with from going from DNA to RNA, where we, have to, where we had to polymerase RNA. And the way we did that, going backwards a little bit, because this is important to this part of the conversation, is we match codes. So DNA and RNA are very similar. They, they share three out of four molecules and they have one change. So um, the 
genomic code is GCAT. That's your DNA. That's the only four letters that's in the whole alphabet of your DNA is, four, is those four. In RNA, we have three out of four of those. We have GC and T. But instead of A, we now use a U. Um, we don't have to go into all the molecular, the molecular biology and, and physics of, of those different molecules and what their names are. What's important for the conversation is that one difference between, a, between an A and a U is really important. It allows us to have a slightly different molecule. It's also what allows the system to do a bunch of other things, which we won't get into. But what happens is now that we have an mRNA, it's gotten out of the nucleus. Now we need to match the RNA the translate and translate that into a completely different molecule. So we went from two similar molecules where we could do a one-to-one -one pairing and we could say, ah, a G is a G, whether it's RNA or DNA, a C is a C, and oh, an A is a U when we do that, that transcription, when we transcribe it from DNA to RNA. Now we get into the more complexity. So we go from a four-letter alphabet in, the, in RNA or DNA to a 26-letter alphabet in amino acids. So amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. So now we have to do this complex dance where we're now trying to take and figure out from, four, from three letters, sorry, four letters. I, I gave it away a little bit there. <laughs> four letters into a code that goes for a unique 26 alphabet um, uh, piece. So this is where we get into the Rosetta Stone. Um, if you look at, if you remember your, if you went to university and you or you went to a college that did uh, biology 101, you may have heard these terms where we have the triplet code. What this really f refers to is that the way we transcribe or translate the RNA into a, into a protein is that we have a three a three letter code of RNA which encodes for one of the 26 amino acids that gives us a unique that also gives us a way to define where an RNA starts so I have kind of, I, I'm kind of lying to you a little bit it's not really 26 it's actually 28 because we need the 26 letters plus we need to start and a stop um, we won't get into it there, but there's some some additional complexity in how we make the RNAs and whatnot, because we need a lever for the for the transporter proteins to hold on to, which we call the UTRs or untranslated regions. So this is actually how it doesn't hold on to the RNA part that we translate as part of the gene; it holds on to another part that allows us to do, again, going back to the thematic of cell biology of extra complexity to allow us to regulate how fast we make it, how many we make, where it goes afterwards, all these other really interesting things that we won't get into in this episode. Suffice it to say, we need a way to define starts and stops. We need a way to define which amino acid goes in which place because the order is, is vitally important. If we get one amino acid different um, in the order, the protein won't look the way it should and therefore it can't do its job. Form is exactly function when it comes to protein. Um, it's not a string, it's not, a, you shouldn't think of it as spaghetti, you should think of it as a very formed thing. Um, so what we're really trying to do is we're trying to take a piece of spaghetti and we're really trying to define how we would make a chair out of it.
that's that's the level of complexity to think about. So we take these three codes, again, going back to it, and we have an RNA, which is part of the security pro protocols around the amino acids, and we basically match them. So we match RNA to RNA, and then we have this, this complex structure which attaches an RNA to a amino acid. And we take that and we hook that into the message and we keep trying to find the right triplet pair. So we have an AUG on our messenger RNA. So again, messenger RNA came from the nucleus. It's our copy that we're using to make a protein. And we're going to try and take a transport RNA, which is attached to a, a single amino acid, and we're going to try and match these up. So it's a one-to-one. -one. We, we're looking for A to A, U to U, G to G. Once we have that, we can now take that with that amino acid and we can polymerize. Again, we can take multiple amino acids and what we do is we just simply read through the message. So, so it's very similar to, uh, probably most similar to Morse code. Um, for everybody <laughs> younger than me, you may have never heard of Morse code, but if you look it up and it's spelled M-O-R-S-E, um, it's basically a series of dots and longer um, marks that can be translated into the the kind of Telewriter. Um, so that's that's Morse code. <clears throat> so once we have that, we we start to build a protein, and how long the mRNA is will define how long the protein is. So and it basically divides by three. So if you have a 99 uh, RNA molecule long mRNA, you're gonna have a 33 amino acid long protein. Typically they're longer than that, but it doesn't really matter. Once you have that protein and we have that translation, you have other areas of cell where we, we kind of give it an environment to find its natural function and form. And sometimes if it's a, an, an, an enzyme, it'll need some additional pieces onto it. Or sometimes if it's a certain kind of protein, it'll need some enhancements or changes. Some proteins in the cell are very much cyborgs. They're not actually, they're not actually just the amino acids which we think of as protein. They'll have um, all these cool changes to them, whether it's ubiquitin or sumylation or pomidylation, all these really cool changes that, that define how they work and sometimes slow them down or speed them up. A lot going on there. Um, but that's a topic for another conversation. So with that, I'm going to end here. I appreciate you taking the time. If you've made it to the end of this, I thank you. Um, and where we're gonna go after this is I'm gonna stick to my knitting a little bit. Uh, we're gonna talk about gene expression, um, how you find an mRNA in detail, um, and then how you regulate that process in the, in the nucleus. And then we'll move on outside of the nucleus. So I hope you enjoyed it. Um, please leave me comments and let me know what you thought of this. And I thank you and I hope you join me for the next episode.